It's like a sociological thing. It's like, why are people turning to this? There's so many things. You're right. Yeah. Like there's there's a sickness in our society. And sometimes the medicine is the drugs people take to cope with it. Yeah. Um, And that's more of a societal problem. Welcome, friends, to episode 282 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week we discuss Danny Boyle's 1996 film, Train Spotting. Man, I didn't realize just how much Train Spotting informs my knowledge of like Scottish dialect and, and like sort of the area surrounding like Glasgow and Edinburgh and some of the places they talk about. Um, yeah, this is a fun movie to go back to. I had a great time with this. I can see the influence of this movie and other filmmakers that have followed it. I think even um, Vince Gilligan has talked about this movie being an influence. Um, it, it really like it's I barely remember it. And like watching it, I'm like, man, I didn't remember like anything about what actually happened in it um, or very little about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but certain scenes um, I'm like, oh, I do remember this scene. I do remember this scene. It's like I lost all the context. The scene was familiar. It's a, it's kind of a, a colorful, engaging, like visual feast of a movie, even as we're mostly in like these torn up apartments and looking at a lot of like pretty gross stuff half the time. Yeah, um, it still manages to be like arresting. Totally. I couldn't help but think about how beautiful this movie is. And it, it, it yeah. likens itself to a lot of the stuff in the 90s that was like anti-establishment, but also like well-crafted in, in the way that it, like it, it takes all the rules of filmmaking and it and it chops them up, but it's still doing it at like a really experimental and like expert level. And th- I saw a lot of stuff in my research about this film. This was shot in like 31 days of principal photography. Wow. They, they shot at such a crazy clip that most of the takes were one or one takes. And then it was like moving yeah. on to the next thing. And just so much of it on a technical level, like you're talking about the colors, the, yeah. the like playfulness in the editing. We get the freeze frames and the time lapses that look really cool. And then using yeah. the use of music and the music of this era and sort of like like the punk scene and like the pop scene and all of that combined to make like a really cool snapshot of this time period. I agree. And like, I wanted to ask you about that because we've talked in the past about like having a score versus having a soundtrack. Yeah. And, um, and you've, you've talked about how you generally don't like it when a bunch of soundtrack like music comes on it, and you prefer depen- a score, yeah. but clearly it depends because I, depends. I'm with you, man. Like this yeah. movie, I think it's perfect to have this. There's a cheap way of doing it. I think if you take yeah. a really popular song and you do take like just some random action scene and you throw them together and kind of hope that that goes together, that's different than what Danny Boyle's doing here or like what Pulp Fiction did with the soundtrack. Or yeah. you think of like a Baby Driver or something more recent with Edgar Wright, where he's like the all the songs that are incorporated into the film he had he was listening to as he wrote it and he knew where the cuts would be and it cuts along with the music. It's very like oh, rhythmic in that way. And so like, well, and this movie is about. Um, a certain subculture and music is clearly very important to that subculture. Um, the characters mention it several times throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important in that regard too, of like, that's part of this lifestyle and they're kind of showing what the music is like for these people um, and what they're listening to. Yeah. It just great performances too. knowing like how gritty this was as a, as a film production, knowing that like, first of all the performances are amazing if they're all off the first take that's incredible and then some of the technical (laughs) they can't be obviously but it's just like you have like the stunts or or like weird hallucinogenic moments where you're like to to get that right it's not that's not by accident it's like amazing pre-production and i think that's specifically what vince gilligan was referencing when i remember it he was talking about there's a sequence in breaking bad where jesse um does heroin i think yeah and he floats and he was referencing how much he liked the train spotting um, practical effects used to create these trippy moments without relying on bringing in like, you know, special effect like uh, CGI or other kind of things like that. Instead, they're just manipulating the space, creating unusual situations, playing with uh, perspective and things like that to create this like still trippy effect even as everything you're seeing in screen is real. And you mentioned the color, like the use of like stained glass for like greens and blues and reds and yellows and the and like giant, there's the bar that they come out of at one point, I think it's called the vol- volcano or something like that. And it's all red on the outside and it's him running after, I think her name's Diane. Diane, uh, yeah. 
and just like how how visually interesting that looked. This film, I think, was introducing a lot of people to a, a, like a, a time and a culture in in Scotland that they that a lot of international filmgoers hadn't seen before. So this was kind of like a, a representation of what it can be like. And yeah, and it was a big deal that it was like a Scottish film, but it's in the way that it's still tied into Britain is sort of well, clearly there's also something universal about this, too. I think, you know, there, there, there's there tends to be underground subcultures, drug culture in every country mm -hmm. and there's a lot of overlap right especially nowadays where where the internet has really i think you know closed distances uh between people but like even then i think there was some overlap there was there were sometimes lags like things would come over later things yep. like that'll happen but um these these scenes are influencing each other right like the british punk scene and the the scottish and the the american and all this so yeah you've seen the film before what what was your take on it this time like yeah. do you recommend this film to people i mean speaking on the color stuff i definitely noticed the way i guess danny boyle is the filmmaker yes um the way he was using specific colors to evoke certain things i thought red throughout represented heroin and represented the, that lifestyle you know beyond that and also the danger and the um, pleasure, all of that, I think, was bound up in red. And then if you, as soon as you start noticing that, you'll notice how red is situated in every scene, which characters are wearing red, um, which, which walls are red, in different scenes where like one character is off of heroin and the other one is still on it or tempting them back. Usually that character will be associated with red in some way. I, I bring all that up to say that like there's a really clever... Um, tactic being taken here as a filmmaker and making it beautiful making it visually interesting being very smart with the way that this plays out and then the subject matter that we're reading that we're witnessing is mostly from the irvine welsh novel that we just covered last week i was kind of astounded at how much is directly from it um there's a couple of little deviations here or there but mostly the changes were omission it was a lot of stuff left out of the film that was in the in the book but some of the stuff that was left out um, changes, I think, my feelings around the messaging of the movie um, because of what was omitted, right? Um, so I'm still like kind of processing all of that, but um, I did find the visual language to be so rich and approachable that I was immediately hooked in a way that I wasn't with the book that kept me at arm's length a lot longer. And the Scottish uh, dialect on screen was 10% as thick as I think what we were reading, in my opinion. It was it was a lot more discernible for someone who who isn't like intimately familiar with that. Yeah, at times they would get, you know, pretty rough. But <laughs> um, for the most part, it was like, this is the kind of stuff I'm used to from watching TV. I, I've seen plenty of films, you know what I mean? Like, I'm fine with this. It's the stuff in the book that was like so deep and that uh, phonetic spelling of the language that made it very difficult to read. And, and the film is much easier to digest. Um, and so all of that has me feeling pretty good about this movie, honestly. And, and I'm, I'm, I enjoyed watching it for sure. I was struck by just like how much I appreciated this film. I, I remember liking it, but now I love it. I was like, oh my God, this is an incredible moment in time. And because it was so vignetted in the book and so, so torn apart, which was yeah. cool and I appreciate it for that, but but the way that this book flows, this story now flows together in the film, uh, I, I like a lot. And yeah, it's stylish, it's cool, right away you like it. And like the first half of the, the story is kind of that, right? Like heroin, it looks like a bunch of adventures, it looks like a lot of fun, everybody's having a great time and nothing can go wrong. And then the reality sets in and we get the you know all the the consequences to yeah what, what we've been seeing is so fun and this gets back into something we talked about last week with welsh responding to you know 20 years on or 30 years on his novel and the ways that it it kind of latched on to to people and and this was seen as cool in ways and and i kind of in putting it all in the context of now the book and the film the legacy of the story now i get where he's coming from a little more yeah because it does feel like if you just like if you watched half this movie, took heroin and then fell asleep and never watched the second half, you'd think it's the greatest thing ever. Yeah. I don't know if you saw the comment, but um, uh, I believe it was Laura from Why the Book Wins commented on our last video um, that she had a friend who got addicted to heroin and says that this movie is why. That he watched this movie and wanted to try it because of it. I did not see um, that. Now, I don't, this is all secondhand, you know what I mean? So, yeah, But just just the idea that that could happen. 
is a little bit like that makes you pause right when you're when you're like celebrating this movie right yeah terrifying as yeah. an artist too because you're like does that mean that you are responsible for that yeah. kind of stuff well i mean and the movie even kind of addresses this a little bit with what goes on with tommy and rent who is he is the gateway for tommy um we can I, I, we all have to circle back to a lot of these questions i think i think that's interesting to talk about the legacy the messages behind the movie um and yeah it's like you're having fun with it and we talked about the book how the book's really funny and how it's this dark hum humor and i think the movie's funny as well for sure um but there's this other element of like everything is portrayed as being so sexy and exciting and fun and you're with your friends and you're living life to the fullest like that's the thing it feels like this bohemian like i am just living life to 110 percent um and there's always going to be appeal to that especially to viewers who are feeling like their life is stuck in a rut it's bored yeah. uh, they're bored and, and they're looking for something exciting so you have crafted this to be as appealing as it can be even as you're showing a lot of like gross shit a lot of the visual language is still beautiful you know yeah and for someone who's like disillusioned or doesn't feel like they have a place like you can see yourself latching onto something like this so you could you yeah. can definitely like get sucked into this so I, I understand that um you mentioned the dialect and i i think you won't be surprised to hear that um obviously with the the pace of this film they didn't have a lot of time to like slow down and in post-production producers, I think Miramax was involved, pushed for uh, re-recording of almost 20 minutes of dialogue, softening the accent, the Scottish dialect to to attune it for American ears. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it worked, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if that ultimately is like a good thing, but um, I noticed that it was it was easier to uh, to to comprehend for me. <laughs> right. So let's get into some of this development of how this film came to be. Let's talk about uh, Daniel Francis Boyle, who is the director of this film. He's an English director and producer. He's known for his work on films including Shallow Grave, Train Spotting, The Beach, 28 Days Later, Sunshine, Slumdog Millionaire, 127 Hours, Steve Jobs, and Yesterday. His film debut, Shallow Grave, won the BAFTA Award for Best British Film. Uh, the British Film Institute ranked Train Spotting the 10th greatest British film of the 20th, 20th century. Boyle's 2008 film Slumdog Millionaire, the most successful British film of the decade, was nominated for 10 Academy Awards and won eight, including the Academy Award for Best Director. He also won the Golden Globe and BAFTA Award for Best Director. Uh, I did not know some of those movies <laughs> were him. That That's news to me. That's pretty well. Yeah. Slumdog Millionaire, 28 Days Later. Yep. I mean, there's some, there's some really good stuff in that list. That's a really good track record, and I think... Uh, Rightly so. He's pretty highly regarded, especially in the British film scene. In 2012, Boyle was the artistic director of Isles of Wonder, the opening ceremony of the 2012 Summer Olympics. He was subsequently offered a knighthood as part of the New Year's honors, but declined due to his Republican beliefs. And Republican, just for those that don't know, in, uh, in the UK is against the monarchy. So they want to replace the monarchy with a republic. It's not okay. the same as republicanism in the US. Yeah, I could see turning turning down a knighthood. I mean, there's a, there's a particular rant in this film where uh, Rent is basically talking about how sh how how awful it is to be colonized by Britain. Um, so it would be kind of ironic for the director to then turn around and accept a knighthood. <laughs> yeah, he you know it's cool that he stands by his because there's tons of people that we love in the artistic community that have taken on knighthoods, but sure, it's cool to see him put his money where his mouth is and decline something like that. Yeah, it's clearly an important thing for him and for Irvine Welsh, right? Like, it seems like they're aligned in that in that way. So with the development of this film, there was a producer named Andrew McDonald. He read Irvine Welsh's book on a plane, and then he turned it on to Danny Boyle and John Hodge, who was the writer, in February of 94. Boyle was excited by its potential to be the, quote, most energetic film you've ever seen about something that ultimately ends up in purgatory or worse. Hodge read it and made it his goal to, quote, produce a screenplay which would seem to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, would last 90 minutes, and would convey at least some of the spirit and the content of the book. That quote kind of sounds, like, snarky to me. I'm like, yeah. he wanted it to be beginning, middle, and end in 90 minutes. Like, that's that's a film. But at the same time, to take something that was more abstract in the way that yeah. this this book was and do that, is it's really impressive. And it I think he really captured the spirit of the book. One of the things he did, I think, is honestly a, a great lesson for any screenwriter looking to adapt um, something that's a little more scattered like the book is. 
he took multiple scenes that would take place across multiple chapters of the book and he had them occur simultaneously and he would cut between them that way they aligned because he recognized there's some certain um, similarities between these scenes. He interspersed them with each other um, to give the, to give it a narrative direction that the book, these are like sequential, right? And you just are left to like realize that there are some similarities there. So I think it's clever and it's something that, um, you know, it, 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 people who are looking to adapt stuff could learn from. Yeah. So Boyle convinced Welsh to let them option the rights to the book by writing him a letter stating that Hodge and MacDonald, who were the, the writer and the uh, producer that I mentioned before, were, quote, the two most important Scotsmen since Kenny Dalgish, who's a, a footballer, and okay. Alex Ferguson, who was the legendary manager of Manchester United. And okay. I know it's <laughs> it's kind of funny probably for, for anybody in the UK to hear this, but I'm a Manchester United supporter. So it's like Alex Ferguson is an absolute legend. So for him to say, for Boyle to say that uh, these two people are in the same league as those two people is pretty incredible. Um, <laughs> and so Welsh hears this and he remembered that originally the people wanting to option the book quote, wanted to make a po-faced piece of social realism like Christian F. or The Basketball Diaries. He was impressed that Boyle, Hodge, and McDonald wanted everyone to see the film and not just the art house audience. So Ewan McGregor was always, as soon as the script was written, he was always the choice to play Rent. Uh, he previously worked with Boyle in Shallow Grave, and uh, Boyle wanted somebody who had the quality of Michael Caine's character in Alfie and Malcolm McDowell's character in A Clockwork Orange. Quote, repulsive with charm that makes you feel deeply ambiguous about what he's doing. Mm. So I feel, I feel like he captured that, but that's, you know, that's difficult competition to put on somebody who's been in a, a couple of films at that point. I mean, this guy went on to become a freaking massive star, so I think he saw something in him, you know? He must have, right? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I read that McGregor shaved his head and lost 26 pounds for this role. He also read books about crack and heroin to prepare for the role. He went to Glasgow and met with people from the Calton Athletic Recovery Group, an organization of recovering heroin addicts. He was taught how to cook up heroin with a spoon using glucose powder. McGregor considered injecting heroin to better understand the character, but eventually decided against it. Yeah, probably for the best. For the best, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I they, people get really hard on those like uh, researching and preparing for roles, and you know he had a great performance. So yes, I can see why he would be thinking about it. I think he must have known that this had the potential to be a really breakout role for him, and he wanted to do it right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's certain things I think that you gotta you gotta stop shy Trouble of. Line. Yeah, I I and this is I won't go on a huge tangent here, but there's this really famous Reddit thread where somebody posted like everything's great in my life and I'm, I'm really considering trying heroin just because like I like a lot of different drugs and I want to see what it's like and I know that I won't get addicted to it and all this other stuff and it's this it's this 10-year saga you can uh-huh. go look it up where this person tries heroin and then like will update periodically they tried heroin and then they couldn't kick it they tried it again and then it became a habit and then their life fell apart and yeah. then like you you can follow this person's post for like 10 years and they've gone through recovery and relapses and all kinds of stuff so yeah this is the drug that like not even one time so if you and mcgregor once, yeah. did use heroin for this there's a possibility that he isn't the the person that we know him as today so i guess i'm advocating yeah. against heroin use here it's possible i mean i'm sure there are there are people who try it once and never touch it again i'm sure it's happened um sure i think even in the book they mentioned that like when tommy wants to try it um, I think uh, Rent says like, oh, you know, there in theory, there are people who do that, but he got a vibe from Tommy that he wasn't going to be one of them. Um, and then that, yeah, that definitely didn't end up being the case. And it's just like, why take the risk? Um, uh, yeah, it's not worth it. Yeah. I mean, but the the movie and the story does a good job of, of explaining like why people, why these people do it and why they stay addicted yeah. to it, because it's the best you can get as far as that that euphoric sensation and just like how good the high is, I guess. Yeah, I think they do a good job of showing how miserable their lives are and how stuck they feel, uh, how sort of destitute they are, um, how much they, they are, are. It's a rejection of modern and uh, i guess like accepted society and like um life trajectory the whole movie issues that right like it it is it is it starts off with rent giving this um diatribe about 
about life and how he you know doesn't want doesn't want to to go down that route it's very nihilist um it's all set to this lust for life song by iggy pop um and to me it it this is the kind of stuff that would later on be similar to what tyler durden would say in fight club totally um, it's a different slightly message because this is more drug related and you know fight club's different but but a similar like rejection of the status quo and what we're supposed to do according to society. And there's definitely a part of me and a part of a lot of people watching this who resonate with that, feel frustrated with all of the boxes that we're supposed to fit in in our lives. And there's an appeal to that. Um, and we circle back to that at the end. And I think that's a lot of the like message of the movie is very just counterculture, the appeal of that other alternative lifestyle. There's a, and, and that's a lot of 90s movies, I think, that we were in such an interesting time in the 90s that that this cross section of multiple and it's in multiple different cultures as well. Like this is the Scotland version. I think you can see some of the American version in Fight Club for sure. Yeah. Um, in in the marketing and everything of this film, Miramax and, and some of the, the producers were so confident in it that they started they they spent almost as much if not more on marketing this film than they did creating it in the first place because they felt so confident wow. after seeing it mcdonald the producer worked with miramax to sell the film as a british pulp fiction flooding the market with postcards posters books soundtrack albums and then director danny boyle actually went and created a new music video for lust for life which is a, a track by iggy pop that appears in the film yeah, it's, so the, like, it's the opening song. I think it yeah. might even come back later too, yeah. The the similarities that are going on. And then, you know, you got your Pulp Fiction, which is like this indie darling that like takes over in the early 90s. And yeah. then a lot of film starts to follow the trends, but also like it was like a generation that wanted to be heard in this really interesting way. Yeah. And it wasn't like... I guess like, this would be like, would this be Gen X? I guess it would be, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah, Gen X, I yeah. think different generations have different things to deal with. And this generation had like this like loss of self or something that they were all trying to grapple with and like yeah. you know they talk about it in the book and in the film but like this like and we're seeing a lot of it today to be honest with you um but we're reacting it's in different ways cy cyclical right like all this stuff comes back um in different guises but i mean like i said there's something universal about this even even as it is highly specific to this time and this place yeah um the idea that like it's like even if you have everything laid out and you do everything correctly, you still might not be in the, in the place that you want to be. And then that's not even to, to talk of that's to talk about like financial situations like mental health and like all kinds of other things like that that were being grappled with at, in the in the 90s. I think now are like more out in the open and can be talked about. But it's it's we're dealing with a lot of the same things. If you look at like governments not having people's best interests at heart and like people being stuck in dead end situations like it just like you said, it kind of. I'm sure there's a, there's some of that to each generation, but it seems like we're back in a similar kind of spot to uh, back then. And that and that references the the interview we heard from from Welsh, where he was saying we're right we're right back in it. And there's a reason that young people are looking at this movie and saying, "Yeah, let's fuck it, let's do drugs." Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I wanted to talk about like when this came out too. '96 saw a drastic change in in British music with the rise of popularity for Brit pop. Uh, although old-fashioned pop was still firmly rooted in British culture. With Oasis dominating the singles chart and the Spice Girls on the rise, the face of pop shifted from guitars to digitized beats. Mm -hmm. Trainspotting soundtrack aimed to champion the alternative music legacy of 1996 Britain with a focus on presenting electronic music on equal footing with rock music. Yeah, there was some interesting moments of that, uh, especially towards the end. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And you think about like the British invasion when it was like, you know, it was like the Stones and the Beatles came to America and what that I think we saw a similar thing in the 90s again, like the cyclical nature of, of things like this and music being so integral to this movie and, mm -hmm. and like the punk scene, the British punk scene being so like, like definitely, I think, started a lot of what we would eventually see in the States as well. But you have like that really popular stuff and then you have the underground scene and they're like coming together in, in really interesting ways in the 90s yeah and this this movie became i think uh one of the most beloved films for that for that subculture i think this is a yeah. a, a classic uh, for a lot of people for that reason yeah and then let's move into the film itself we can talk more about some of the styles i do want to talk about the the, the title which we know from the book 
what the title means in the context of that story but this Do doesn't we? have <laughs> well well they talk about like there's a you know the father of one of the one of the people says that they're just trains standing around or, looking at trains and that um, likens it to so, people who do stand around and look at trains as like a right, hobby and how like they they are the people who understand it and people looking at people who are train spotting are like yeah. i don't get it why are you so fascinated in it and then sort of that's the parallel with the heroin usage and everything like that i guess so yeah i was going to ask you like what what we make of that of that title uh, i noticed in this movie there is a a, a, a certain sequence when rent is uh, recovering or mm -hmm. at one point being forced into recovery where the wallpaper is covered in trains. Right. Um, so that was like the only real appearance of, I can remember of trains in the movie. There, there was one um, train when they were at, they were about to go on their hike out to the mountain and Tommy's all energetic. There was like, they, they're like, right there by. but it's not, it's not, you wouldn't think that the movie would be called Transpotting after that scene. It's, it's an interesting title. I, I think it is like kind of, clearly a title that you're supposed to talk about like why the fuck is this called train spotting and you're supposed to to debate you know um it is kind of a it's a hobby it's not really a job that people can have um it's something people to get enjoyment from you're also like watching the comings and goings of people and business um from like a passive perspective Maybe there's something there, right? With just kind of observing from an outside perspective. There's the allure of being able to leave. We do see, uh, you know, Renton obviously wanting to get out of Scotland uh, towards the end. And um, it seems sometimes like people want to like escape their lives and maybe trains represent a way, out, like a way out, a path out. Um, so I think there are layers to this that you could, you could start pulling apart. Um, but on first blush, it's kind of like, why the fuck is this called train spotting? It makes no sense. <laughs> yeah. I read that Irvine Welsh actually went on record and explained the title stating that it started out as a euphemism for taking drugs. Okay. So you would kind of talk amongst yourself and say like, oh, we're going train spotting. I, um, I see. Okay. Often they were doing it at a train station also. The term gradually evolved to be described as an obsessive hobby that is not understood by people who do not practice it. Yeah, that tracks. Uh, I mean, I think that's basically what we are touching on there. Interesting. I, I think it's also taken on a life of like, if you understand that people will say, oh, you know, they're train spotting or they'll use it as a term not for heroin and not for tr looking at trains like they'll use it as like that same kind of thing like a euphemism for like they're interested in a hobby that not a lot of people understand oh i haven't heard that but i you know i'll take your word for it cool that's what i that's what i read so. <laughs> oh okay <laughs> yeah take it up with my notes <laughs> all right so let's move into the plot here and we can dig in in scotland mark renton a 26 year old unemployed heroin addict lives with his parents and regularly takes drugs with his friends simon sick boy williamson Daniel Spud Murphy and Swanee Mother Superior, their dealer, Renton's other friends, Francis Franco Begbie and Tommy McKenzie, who both abstain from heroin, warn him about his dangerous drug habit. Growing tired of his reckless lifestyle, Renton attempts to wean himself off heroin with a bare room, food, and opium suppositories from ill-reputed dealer Mikey Forrester, who I'll say it here so I don't forget it. Mikey Forrester in the film is actually a cameo by Irvine Welsh. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. saw that too. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Pretty cool. I had no Pretty idea, cool. no idea yeah. until I read that later. He develops diarrhea and has to relieve himself in the disgusting toilet of a bedding shop, then imagines himself swimming in the filthy water as he retrieves the suppositories. Renton attempts to lead a, quote, useful and fulfilling life away from heroin. This consists of him meeting Sick Boy in a park where he shoots a stranger's dog with an air gun, supplying Spud with amphetamine for a job interview that turns disastrous, and stealing a sex tape of Tommy and his girlfriend Lizzie. At the Volcano nightclub, Renton notices that his cessation of heroin use has increased his libido. He seduces a girl named Diane Coulston, and they return to her apartment to have sex. The following morning, Renton learns that she is below the age of consent and lives with her parents, whom Renton initially assumes are her flatmates. Diane threatens to report him to the police if he does not continue the relationship. Um, let's go back to the beginning, right? Um, we get we get this opening monologue. Uh, the, um, I love the sequence where uh, when we first meet Rent and all the characters, really, but then he gets hit in the head with the soccer ball and then like slowly starts keeling over at the same time that he's keeling over in a different scene. Yeah. And heroin and then he hits the ground and we have that like there's like a mural painted. It's this like nude woman, but she's kind of distorted and you can't really mm. see what's going on. Her face is kind of odd and it's like in the plaster of the wall. There's a hole in the other wall. It's this like rancid, you know, place. 
Um, but it's all beautifully lit, right? And we see this almost like majestic movement by the character. I don't know. It's just immediately pretty stunning. Yeah. Dealing with like, there's like some slow motion being used. And then the lighting that we've talked about is like practical at times. There's these like interesting yeah. lamps near the ground. Yeah. Sometimes they're blue, sometimes they're red. Um, and then, like I said, there'll be different colored lights coming through the windows. And I, it just gave it this really otherworldly f- feeling. Yeah, that... blue and green both to me would represent like escape from that lifestyle. You know, like the real world would often be stuff that was green. I think the baby at, at different points would be looking into the room while they're all doing heroin. It would be like coming out of a room where everything was green. Yeah, just this like all green room. Um, and then uh, Mother Superior, that guy. Um, he was standing in the kitchen that had that like red shade on the glass. Mm-hmm. So he was always bathed in that red light. And so they would be dealing with him. And it was like he was Satan, like dealing this stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah, um, I saw it. Interesting. And I read that for the look of the film, Boyle was influenced by the colors of Francis Bacon's paintings, which represented, quote, a sort of in-between land, part reality, part fantasy. They, 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 the way they would transition between scenes even sometimes blended reality with fantasy. I think that that appeals to me so much to have because of the hallucinations and because of the drug usage and stuff, you can have the film be so expressionist and so, um, you know, experimental in those ways. And that that appeals to me because like, yeah, you get to play with this form, the fantasy ideas of like him going into the toilet and like swimming around for the suppositories. That is such a cool scene where you're shooting underwater. So fucking gross, but then also really cool. And I love the practical effect of him being pulled into the toilet because it does not look big enough for him. But they've clearly like blocked it in such a way that there's something going on where he can actually because he really does go into it. Yep. Um, it looks so cool. That kind of stuff is like I love that man when they can yep. when they can cleverly disguise things like that. Like it looks great. So cool. And uh, I read that 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 sh- all of that was chocolate, by the way. So it smelled pleasant okay. <laughs> in there. It was nice and it wasn't as disgusting. It looked real it bad. Yeah, I felt a little bit like queasy at, uh, during that bathroom sequence. Um, yeah. That that one got me a little bit. Um, and starting out a movie with your lead, like coming in and just like shitting his brains out. And, yeah. and like it's such a bold thing to do. And like you're just like immediately setting this movie up as like this is a different kind of movie. Man, it breaks so many freaking boundaries and just tries shit and like goes for it and shows you things you're not expecting to ever see in a movie um so like i have to give it credit for that um i i felt like the beginning of this movie is sort of the seduction part um yes it shows the underbelly yes we see the fucked up stuff that rent is willing to do to get those suppositories but the start of the very start of the movie is you know, these characters are are clearly high out of their minds, but they're behaving in ways like they're like in the they're kind of like blissed out. Right. Like we see Spud like kisses sick boy right on the mouth and sick boys like looking at um, I think it was Leslie, whoever he's injecting They're They're clearly like there's a sexual tension there all while everybody's doing heroin. And it's like this is the seduction of heroin and the 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 I mean, she directly says like how it's, you know, 10 times any orgasm you've ever had and talks about all that and like, you know, beats any meat injection. I think she says um, you'll ever get. So like that's the that's the kind of stuff where it's like it's we're showing you the appeal of it. Right. And you kind of have to like stick with the movie to see the rest. Um, but this it's such a powerful moment that some people, I think, walk away with this being the lasting impression. Um, and then like the partying that happens, right? We see several different sort of party sequences. We see people at the, at the club, um, hooking up, you know, this, this, there's a lot of hookups and stuff in this movie. It's a lot of beautiful people, right? Yeah. Um, that, that, uh, it, there's an appeal to it. And your point basically is that like, if you, if you leave the movie with that as, as the, the moral of the story, then you're kind of missing some of it because you don't get the other yeah. side of it. I think, yeah. Cause like this happens a lot with art. It's when we're talking about generalizations, when we're talking about specifics, like specific people are capable of great nuance and, and, and like understanding a nuanced perspective and taking away a nuanced message. But when you start taking on the masses, I feel like there's trends and there's there's always going to be people who instead oversimplify, latch on to certain things and um there's a little bit of, of that, I think, happening in this movie, because I think ultimately the message of this movie is very messy. It's very 
um, layered. There is definitely a look how like like appealing this is, yeah. but also look at all the shit I'm going to show you about how awful it is and what it does to these people's lives. And we see the character struggling to get out of it. And we should be identifying with the need to get out of it and like seeing it as a tragedy when they're falling back into it. But uh, yeah, I just, it, people in general sometimes struggle, even if an individual can get it. <laughs> yeah. And we've had these conversations in the past with like a Patrick Bateman and American Psycho or Tyler yeah. Durden in Fight Club where the artistic literacy just might not be there for the, the like you said, the broad masses. Yeah. Uh, to to the, where they're, they're walking away saying, Patrick Bateman is such a cool character. I want to wear suits yeah. and have a cool, you know, a cool fucking whatever you call it, business card. Yeah. And like, that's not the point of the movie. Like the the, the, yeah. the point of it comes at the end. And like, you're like, okay. And sometimes I think about killing people and now that has justified by this <laughs> yeah. character. Yeah. Normalized to treat people those certain ways and stuff. Yeah. So uh, yeah, the whole point is to like take on the entire journey. And yeah, I, I think that that's what you're talking about with the, the And it's first messy, half. right? Like, I don't, I don't know what the answer is to that and like culpability in art and like, you know, I, I, I really don't know. It's an interesting conversation and one that I'm willing to engage with a lot of different perspectives on because I think it is it is an ongoing conversation um yeah but let's move on uh with, with here we, we meet all the different characters that opening scene where they're running and he's giving that speech of like the you know buy the car get the house get married yeah. is such an iconic monologue and so yeah. cool and the way that it comes back at the end it reminds me of like the Tyler Durden stuff some of the stuff that he'll yeah. say in Fight Club that's so iconic um, yeah, that's that. That's what I was talking about. That that anti-consumerist materialism, you know, rejection of that, of the like accumulation of things, and like that appeals to a lot of people. I think you know, even outside of the drug. And you know, it's funny because like I I live in a, 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 a in Oregon where uh, a lot of drug use has been decriminalized, weed has been legalized, um, which I support. Um, I, you know, have occasionally partaken in some <laughs> edibles. Um, <laughs> and it's like, so I'm not like um, trying to like cast aspersions on just like drug use in general. And then like the movie makes a good point. There's like legal drug use. My mother, she's a drug addict, and but in oh. a more, you know, like societally acceptable way. Um, but I think there is also extremities of addiction and of use that are clearly a problem. And um, this movie also is showing that. It's showing the like far, far side of it. Um, so I think some people look at this and go like, yeah, let, you know, it justifies some like casual recreational drug use, but there's such a slippery slope into that severe hard drug use that can ruin your life. I just think we gotta be careful, right? Like what we're, what we're championing here. Um, I don't know. I don't know the answer. It's a messy fucking subject, man. Because ultimately, I don't think America by any stretch is like handling the shit well. Um, and and the criminalization and like locking people up for getting addicted to this stuff. Like, I don't think that's the answer. Like we, we it's it's just uh, it's a tricky subject, man. I mean, with no clear answer, obviously. It's like a sociological thing. It's like, why are people turning to this? There's so many I things. You're right. That. Yeah, like it's, there's there's a sickness in our society, and sometimes the medicine is the drugs people take to cope with it. Yeah. Um, and that's more of a societal problem. And like, where are we at with that? How do we fix that? You know, it's just, there's no answer to it. At least none that and I know I think of. there is value to pointing out the problem, which this movie does at least a little bit of. Sure. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the cast. We haven't really touched on anyone outside of Ewan McGregor. Um, we got Johnny Lee Miller here as Sick Boy, um, who, yeah, I think they really cast him well. I think he captures that like innate charisma, even while the guy's kind of a shithead throughout. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. This version of Sick Boy, I didn't think it was as reprehensible as the one we get in the book. Um, but it's pretty bad too. And in fact, all the characters were like somewhat rehabilitated, I think here. They're not quite as detestable as they they come off in the book. I still was pretty um, surprised to see the dog sequence with uh, with, with Rent, um, especially that Rent took the gun from Sick Boy, who's actually the one who shoots the dog in the, in yeah. the book. Um, but it also doesn't result in the death of the dog. It just kind of moves away from it. It just seems like a random act of cruelty, yeah. which is shitty but not as shitty as sick boy strangling a dog to death that from a situation he caused. Yeah. Yeah. It was rough in the book and, and it's, you know, cruel in the, in the movie as well. I did read that Danny Boyle was just like off screen, like waving his hands and, and like getting the dog all excited to make the dog bark. <laughs> all like that off screen. So yeah. It was kind of fun. 
Yeah, I was just thinking totally about like sense. the indie nature of a film like that. Like the, the yeah. yeah, the director would be directly off off out of frame, like getting a dog to react and stuff. Like it's just, it's really cool, and and it gives this such a nice like texture and and like I said before, like grittiness to where it feels super genuine. Well, we got Robert Carlyle uh, as as uh, Franco Begbie, who is just as fucking shitty in this version as he is in the book. I would say that that he's one where they did a really good job. This guy's such a bully. He's he's such a piece of shit. And they're all just like friends with him. So they're like, well, he's our mate. So, oh, well, I guess we have to put up with it. Um, the the part where he throws the glass over his head and causes that bar fight. Um, he just seems like the worst person. Yeah. Um, I, and it's interesting that he's the one who's like, he's one of the only ones who's not on heroin and he's like super judgy about it. Yeah. That can be a, a commentary if you look at it on like, he's, he's drinking alcohol almost all the time. Sure. He has clearly has anger issues. There's some, some deep seated stuff going on, but yeah. I wanted to read Robert Kyle, Carlisle who plays Begbie's take uh, in 2009. He had, a, he told an inter- a BAFTA interviewer that he played Begbie as a closeted gay man whose outbursts of violence were due to his quote, fear of being outed. And then Irvine Welsh confirmed that he wrote the Begbie of the book to have an ambiguous sexuality and agreed with Carlyle's interpretation of the film's version of the character. Yeah, I mean, that that was definitely a undercurrent thematic question in the book of like these these characters having a lot of toxic and um, damaging views on sexuality, objectifying women being very homophobic and yet clearly there's some evidence of that going on and how much they all are like ashamed of it, reject it. Um, especially rent has a very direct sequence of this in the book that they got omitted from the, from the film at one point, I think it's, is he the one who's talking to uh, Begbie after his uh, experience? He uh, is, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. There's a little bit of it here, but I think there's less to like really sink your teeth into in, in the movie for this. But it, it's more of a thing in the book, I think. For like 96, I thought it was interesting when Rent had the conversation about how they were at the club and he was looking around and he's like, I think feels like at some point, 100 years from now or something like that, 200 yeah. years, everyone will be just be a wanker. Fluid. I think he said. <laughs> and, and in the way that he's like, and I don't care. He's like, that doesn't bother yeah. me. And I think that that's approaching some of the stuff that was right. maybe in the book. Agreed. With Rant. That's like a little taste of the, some of the stuff that's in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, for, for, uh, Begbie to have that scene in the car with the person who was trans trans, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Or yeah. at least cross-dressing. I thought it was interesting to reevaluate Begbie in that way. Um, yeah, it doesn't I, save him at all for me. <laughs> this guy's still, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, if you find out somebody who has these huge rage issues and has caused all these problems, it's like they have a reason for being so angry. Yeah, there's no reason. It's like that doesn't, that doesn't excuse it, right? No, no. But I think it makes the character a little more complex than, than I originally Yeah, and thought. we talked about how Welsh returned to this character with like a later novel. So I can yeah. see the, the interest there. Um, let's move on. We got to talk about Ewan Bremner as Spud. Um, this guy to me has always been this like character actor who sh- I can't even like tell you where I've seen him, but I know I've seen him in a lot of stuff as he's usually some kind of goofball or fuck up or something. Um, and he, he is like fully in the midst of that role here. He in a stage version of train spotting before this movie came out, he played rent boy. He played wow. Renton. Uh, so interesting to, to note that like he then came on to play spud and he said something about like he felt like his his ancestors or he felt like this this movie like spoke to him in ways like his to his heritage and his culture. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it really interesting to, to hear that. But, yeah, he's been in all kinds of stuff and he's always a, a trip for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then let's move on to Kelly McDonald, who I think is, is somebody else. We, the last one that we really got to talk about. She plays Diane here. Um, her her role is interesting. We talked about it in the book some. Um, I think it's like worse in the book in some ways. And the fact that um, we, we find out she's 14. There, in both of them, there's a bit of like a forced complicity. I don't know if this is a thing that we talk, you, like that gets talked about a lot in film circles, but like the movie forces you to be complicit in a lot of what's going on just by virtue of like watching and enjoying the film. Like I started to feel kind of dirty. I started to feel like I was in this world and complicit in it because I was having fun watching this like super well-crafted movie and then the the reveal of oh she's actually super underage yet we just showed you this sex scene 
that was shot in a way that was supposed to be, you know, exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's like pulled one over on us, even as it's pulled one over on the character. Um, now I knew it was coming, but like, you know what I mean? Like it, there's a certain force complicity there. And it, it's an interesting thing that for a filmmaker to do, because I do think it draws you in and it makes you feel like you're no better than anybody that you're watching. Right. And you feel like there is like legitimate chemistry between these people and how taboo that is and how terrible that is and how predatory that can that is because she's younger and yeah it's it's like i don't think that danny boyle's signing off on this i don't think that that's what his intention was i think that he was like this is the ugly truth of the matter uh i'm not trying to like oversimplify and say that whenever you do that in a movie you're drawing people in but like there sometimes can be this effect and i think it's an interesting one to look at yeah um I would say it's definitely a tightrope walk. You have to, yeah. if if done incorrectly, it can it can definitely be disastrous. I think it was well, just just enough here to where I wasn't. I mean, obviously it's offending as a, but but it's like in keeping with Renton's character for sure. She ends up playing a role in this movie where she is sort of a a lifeline yeah. to a more normal life, a more innocent pre-drug life and she is writing to rent throughout she seems to be this like angel honestly that he has in his life that he keeps even though he feels like he shouldn't be um talking to her because it's illegal um she still represents this like that that element in his life right and like that's interesting from an artistic point of view but it is also a little troubling from the reality of you're setting up a young girl to rep to be this like savior of this man who's fallen into drug use i think and, yeah. yeah it gets and we're on the same page of like there, right? it's, it's never it's never okay for someone of this age to be with somebody that that age period it's wow. like really m- not on a limb there but <laughs> i know but it's really messy it's really messy in the way that it's set up she is set up to be sort of like more innocent and he's like oh if i didn't get pulled into all of this Right. Maybe at some point I could. Like, be we feel like, like she's a good force in his life. So we kind of approve of this. And again, it's making us complicit in a way. That's why I just keep coming back to it. it's interesting how it it places us in a in a way where we feel like he actually should probably stay with Diane. This seems like a good thing for him. Yeah, it's messy, <laughs> even though it's I'm, I mean, clearly, I don't think it's good for her. I think we yeah. can all agree on that. <laughs> Rent, even if he is somewhat improved in the movie, like he still seems like uh, bad news to me. So after several unsuccessful attempts to reintegrate into society, Renton, Sick Boy, and Spud relapse into heroin use. Tommy also begins to dabble in drug use after becoming depressed due to being dumped by Lizzie. Despite the group's shock, grief, and horror regarding the negligence-induced death of Dawn, the infant daughter of Sick Boy and Allison, the group still does not recover from their heroin use. Later, Renton, Sick Boy, and Spud are caught shoplifting. Renton and Spud are arrested while Sick Boy narrowly escapes. Spud receives a six-month custodial sentence, and Renton narrowly avoids jail by entering a drug rehabilitation program where he is given methadone to help him. However, Renton quickly relapses and nearly dies of a heroin overdose at Swanee's home. Upon returning home after his revival at the hospital, Renton's parents lock him in his childhood bedroom and force him to go cold turkey. Renton is released upon the condition of an HIV-AIDS test to which he tests negative. I was shocked at how late in this movie we get our first real mention of HIV. Everything related to the danger of HIV and AIDS and the way it literally kills people, all of that element of the book gets put on Tommy. And it's a, it is a turn, right? And we definitely see this guy asked to try it, becomes uh, HIV positive and winds up dying from it. Um, through that horrible thing with the toxoplasmosis and everything we hear about. But it felt a little bit to me like defanged, which is weird to say because it is a harrowing sequence. But in the book, it was it was like everywhere and people were constantly worried about it. And like people knew there's always like, oh, I knew this guy this happened to. And then there's like uh, there was another character who gets it, but like has like a slightly different outcome where he seems to have like figured out a way to live with it. but it's still said he's probably going to die in 10 years. So there's still it's still a death sentence. It felt like a, a much more of a threat in the book. And here it was just like a one little random thing that might happen to you is you, uh, you know, you might you might have that what happens to Tommy. And it's bad, but it feels more like a, a like a I don't know, like a random side thing that could happen to you. It's a risk 
but it's not like everywhere. Yeah, I agree with you. It was unfortunate because it definitely felt like they had to make a decision to feature it less for yeah. the sake of the the bre- like keeping the the clip of the of the movie going, the pacing of the movie. But and it I keeps think, the tone lighter. Yeah, and I, but I do think that that was a really important part of the book and just an important subject to have covered and to talk about with regard to drug use and everything like that for sure. Yeah, it's good that it's here still. Obviously, they didn't cut it out completely, but like you said, right. it definitely doesn't feel as ever present and and uh, you know dangerous because it's Tommy's like still kind of like a secondary character in the story. Right. Yeah. So we have to talk about the scene where because I think this is some of the most ingenious filmmaking that's done in the film is when he relapses and uses heroin for the first time at Swanee's and then he has this overdose and he like sinks down into the carpet and the the carpet like creates borders. Those carpeted borders stay up even though he's being dragged down the steps and everything. There's no carpet anymore. It keeps this like... No, he sees it at the hospital later and like all kinds of stuff. So he has like a cut off worldview because of the drug usage and everything like that. And And what are we even talking about? The red has come back and is now this 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 uh the color language of the film has come to uh, a head here i think and we see yeah. it literally swallowing a character and that was done practically too they just lowered him yeah. down on a trap door it looked really cool but i kept seeing stunts in this movie for for, for you mcgregor where like he's being dragged down the stairs and stuff like yeah that <laughs> that looked painful for it sure and, and you know <laughs> There's there's a quite a bit of this, but then uh, that gets to the sequence where then he gets to come out of that in the hospital room where they quickly raise him back out of it. It's such a cool visual trick to like it's almost like using like a different aspect ratio and then opening the frame back up again, like he's back into the the full view of the world again. Um, and then we move into him going cold turkey with some of the some of the techniques that are used in that room. You've already mentioned it a little bit. They use like an elongated room, like a version yeah. of the room that's much more much it's longer. Cool really cool stuff and and the, when the when the bed's actually pulling away it creates yeah. that effect we talked about i think in um jaws yeah famous dolly zoom yeah that dolly zoom it's like it's like doing a dolly zoom but it's actually i think physically moving the bed instead so it has yeah. a similar effect even though it's like not being created by the camera i don't think it's being created by a manipulation of the space yeah i think that was probably on a i think that like there was a dolly with a bed on it yeah it was cool like i yeah so basically I, I, what's happening yeah. when you're dolly zooming is that two things are moving in separate directions right so like whether it was the the you know the the camera it should it more than likely is the camera because other you'd have to move the entire room if it wasn't the camera yeah i don't know man it looked like a really elongated room and we were taking the bed and pulling it on a track away from the front of the room whereas like in jaws it's a zoom in on the chief's face right but at the same time it's like pulling out so it creates this weird effect i would need to watch it again to know if it was a true dolly zoom then or if they were just yeah. dollying the bed back um, yeah because it's like the change in focal plane basically like right you're squashing the image but really amazing stuff experimental stuff and then just all the, all of the and crazy the baby on the ceiling I will say that effect has not it didn't look super convincing. It, it looked didn't like matter, a doll. Though. Like cuz he's like hallucinating and shit. It's crazy. It's like you don't like it's all part of this like fever it, dream. When it's like head turns around, you can actually see the like uh the yeah. joint of the doll head. <laughs> but I think that's part of it. I think like you know that, that like I said fever dream. Like it's it's fucking scary and it's like yeah, of course we know what's we happening. We didn't mention but... the the crib death moment is so dark and what they show is fucking horrifying. Um, you know, this like bait, like dead baby. And it's that, that was, it's so interesting that I remembered the baby on the roof, but I didn't remember that because that to me was more striking and just how horrifying it was. Yeah. And then, um, it's also then really telling when rent immediately goes back for another hit. And even Allison is like, yeah, I want another hit too. So it shows how reliant they are on the drug to get them through their lives and get them through anything bad that happens and how it's like a, 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 a way to combat that, that horror. Totally. It's it, and yeah, just running. It's escapism, right? They're just like yeah. trying to get away from their lives. And, and especially that it's moment. really fucking tragic, right? Cause it's what caused this whole situation and they immediately go right back to it. Yeah. I, I recommend people go and, and do some research on this film. Cause there's a lot of like visual references to, like classic films and and things that I saw Danny there's Boyle, a taxi driver mural on the, in the yeah. on the wall behind in the bar um uh rent at one point yeah. yeah in the bar which is really cool and then you know you have like your there's a bunch of beatles references and like the way that they walk across the street is almost like that album cover the abbey road yeah. album cover 
um, with the bags in their hands at one point. And then just some of the other techniques that are employed, like, again, I think this film and a lot of other 90s films are reacting to some of what Tarantino, and I'm not saying Tarantino was the only person who was doing it, but he was definitely like the moment that people can point to and say Pulp Fiction kind of changed, yeah. especially indie cinema. And there's like this 90s in indie cinema thing that strove to dazzle the viewer with self-conscious cleverness and empty shock tactics. That that really, to me, when I read that was noticeable. I'm like, yeah, that's very true. It's super shocking stuff. The movie's drawing attention to the fact that it's a movie and it's referencing other yeah. movies and the music is diegetic and also sometimes non-diegetic. The handheld feel that we get some of the times when they're tripping and some of the times when yeah. like he's going through it or like. Uh, the jump cuts and the zoom shots and freeze frames and all that crazy stuff that's like it's drawing attention to itself it's it's yeah. like saying like look how look at the spectacle of this movie and for any uh people who don't know all the film terminology diegetic is when sound is being played like in the scene and you're hearing it um versus being played by the movie itself as like a soundtrack yeah and specifically these movies too were like the the music was becoming a character of itself like it, it yeah. was it was interacting with the movie more so than ever before where a score was meant to be very subtle and yeah. subliminally influence an audience one other part like that uh was the time lapse with brendan and he's talking about feeling depression and boredom and he's at this like bingo night or something and he's surrounded by his family and they're all having all this fun with the game and he's just like still but he's not actually still he, he moves a little bit he sways a little bit so you can see he's really there and i was like how long had they had did they have to shoot this to get the sequence where all the people are moving super fast having a blast around him and he is just like staring like kind of dead-eyed and you it just it conveyed that depression and uh, just like disconnection and and coming down off of heroin uh how how difficult it is here um, yeah. Another moment that I feel like I've seen a bunch like later, just in like montages of famous movie moments. Like, I feel like I've seen that scene. It's another one from this film that like has stood the test of time. Super visually interesting. Like anytime you can do that kind of thing and it, and it serves the story, right? Like it's not just yeah. doing it to, to, to flourish and do something. It's like it's advancing the story and letting us understand like all of us have felt like that before where the world's just rushing by us. Yeah. Uh, so really cool stuff. Visual representation of depression. It's like one of the best I've seen. So now clean, but bored and devoid of a sense of meaning in his life, Renton visits Tommy, who is now severely addicted to heroin and is HIV positive. On Diane's advice, Renton moves to London and works as a property letting agent. To Renton's shock and frustration, Begbie, wanted for a failed armed robbery, tracks him down and takes refuge with him in his apartment. Sick Boy, now trying to be a pimp and drug dealer, soon joins them. Begbie and Sick Boy later attack two of Renton's clientele, resulting in him losing his job. The trio return to Edinburgh for the funeral of Tommy, who has died of AIDS-related toxoplasmosis. Following the funeral, Sick Boy asks Renton, Begbie, and Spud for help in buying two kilograms of pure heroin from Mikey Forrester, with Renton needing to supply the remaining 2,000 pounds asking price. After Begbie threatens him, Renton reluctantly covers the remaining costs and the group returns to London to sell the heroin to a dealer for £16,000. As they celebrate in a pub, Renton secretly suggests to Spud that they could leave with the money, but Spud refuses. Sick Boy indicates he would happily do so, and Begbie brutally beats a man after a minor accident. Concluding that Begbie and Sick Boy are unpredictable and dangerous, Renton quietly steals the bag of money and leaves the following morning. Spud witnesses him but does not warn the others. Renton leaves 4,000 pounds in a safe deposit box for Spud. Begbie, discovering Renton and the money gone, angrily destroys the hotel room where the four stayed, prompting the police to arrive and arrest him as Sick Boy and Spud flee. Spud discreetly claims his share of the money and Renton walks away to his new life. This whole last sequence uh, it, it moves to London. We get like an interesting montage of a bunch of like tourists in London and um, it's very bright and like happy. Um, music is very it, poppy too. very like, poppy yeah. um, and then Renton is like starting to like adopt this new lifestyle he's got a job he seems to be getting his life together he's talking with Diane again who represents sort of a lot of the stuff she's the one who encouraged him to do this um, and then Begbie shows up and then sick boy shows up and they start living with him and it's like his old life is coming back and sure enough he's shooting heroin again because he has to test it for this deal right and he ends up shooting it twice and he says this was my final hit and then he says there are final hits and there are final hits and what one was that what kind of one was this i don't know and i guess it depends on how optimistic you are whether or not you think it was actually his final hit 
Um, and then, yeah, the, the, the way that the stealing of the money plays out um, is similar to the book. There's some slight differences here. Yeah, and this all brings up good points for the fact that there is a sequel novel and a sequel film now. And yeah. like there's, you know, because the way that we leave, do we think that Rent Boy or Renton is is clean after those two? Is that his final shot? There's a sequel to let us know, possibly. And then also like the relationship between these characters post you know, rent boy running off with all the money, we can possibly see that in the future as well. So I yeah. think it'd be fun to revisit. In in know, knowing about how books are written <laughs> and dramatic uh, moments in novels, it feels to me like rent probably does have uh, continued problems with heroin. Um, if we're going to write another so. novel about him. <laughs> yeah, that's my guess. I could be wrong, but that is my yeah. guess. Boyle, like soon after this came out, said he wanted to make the sequel to Trainspotting, which was uh, which takes place nine years after the original film based on Irvine Welsh's sequel porno. Mm -hmm. uh, he reportedly wanted to wait until the original actors had aged some, but also there was a, some Danny Boyle, Ewan McGregor falling out. I guess he promised that Ewan McGregor could be the lead in the beach, which he actually eventually offered to Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, so oh. there was some, maybe some, a feud between them. Now this is all just like, you know, what people are saying, who knows speculation behind closed doors. But, uh, Eventually, Ewan McGregor, Ewan McGregor said, I'm totally up for it. I'd be so chuffed to be back on set with everybody, and I think it would be an extraordinary experience. And then comes around 2014, uh, we start hearing rumors of Welsh spending a week with Boyle, Andrew McDonald, and the creative team behind the original film. And then by later in 2014, they, it's like pretty much a go, and then uh, Boyle wanted the film to come out in 2016, and eventually came out in 2017. And it featured Ewan McGregor as returning and his rent. I believe the whole cast. Yeah, cool. I, I kind of I'm curious to see it now. This was so good. I'd, I'd be interested to see it. Um, the end of this movie, I think, is interesting to talk about because Rent is walking off with into the sunset, essentially with the money. And he's talking about how he's recognizing. I think he's like, I'm a bad person. He says that literally the truth is I'm a bad person. And then he returns to this line that we've seen a few times in the movie where he says, I'm choosing life. Um, there's one point where Sick Boy and the like hallucination tells him to choose life. Um, there's another part I think where Sick Boy has said it like sarcastically. Um, and there's a couple of times where this choice between life and drugs seems to be the like, do you choose life or do you choose the drugs? Um, and here he's saying, I choose life. And he says, I'm going to be just like you. And then there's another list of all the things that he's going to do that's just like us, um, the viewer. Um, it's, it's, it is interesting how it, it like, uh, engages with that. And he's like smiling this almost like evil smile of like, you'll never know that I'm actually amongst you. You know what I mean? I'm going to blend yeah. right in. I think it's doing what I felt like the book was doing as well. And it's humanizing people who can be seen as other, like, oh, you're tainted. You're afflicted with this addiction. And, and yeah. like people look down on in society, people look down on people like this. And I think that that's a way for, you know, the the story draws human like we can we can level with these people on a human level when we understand them and what makes them tick and everything like that. So to see this character succeeding in this way and hopefully getting away from people who are bad influences in his life and he can possibly saw him kind of getting on a straight and narrow. Now, yeah. there are bad people who are not drug addicts. So there's something being said there, too, right? <laughs> yeah. He's like, I'm a bad person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But but also there's a certain level of like acceptance there and like recognizing his culpability, especially what happened with Tommy, mm -hmm. um, a little bit of culpability, what happened with the baby. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the culpability and a lot of shit that's gone down, honestly. Um, so I, it, there's a bit of ownership there, which I think is shows a little bit of growth maybe for the character ultimately. But it's kind of it's it's again, it's messy. It's a messy movie. It doesn't have like a clear structure even as it has been given somewhat of a structure and it feels more structured than the book <laughs> i was going to say more clear than the book yeah. uh, here with all, everything wrapping up at the end but we don't know that he's going to be clean we don't know if he's going to you know eventually get don't back know. with his buddies we don't know well you mentioned the book so i think it's time we got to vote on whether we thought the book or the film was ultimately better here um i'm going to go first i think here and then i'll let you finish um i really enjoyed the experience of covering this I had some difficulties with the book. I did find it to be ultimately a deeper experience. I did I did like being immersed in this dialect, even as I sometimes found it difficult to comprehend everything. Um, but th there was enough stumbling blocks there to keep me from like unabashedly loving the book. The film has a lot of the same questions I have about like 
the effect and legacy of this art, the messaging of it. Yet the filmmaking is on such a high level and the performances were so arresting and sort of um, engaging and delightful to watch. Um, I just found myself having a better time ultimately with the movie. So I think I'm going to give it to the movie here. Um, it just, to me, it feels like the the, the way to experience train spotting um, is this way even as I think very start of the episode, you asked me like what I recommend it to people, certain people, <laughs> I, yeah. think I have to, I have to kind of get to know you and what you're into and what your what kind of your, what your taste in movies are, your, your media literacy, as we've talked about um, before I would necessarily recommend it. But um, yeah, I think, I think I would recommend it to a lot of people because I think it's a very good movie. Um, and it's a really interesting one for sure. I'm glad we watched it. Yeah. Rewatching this, I'm just blown away by what this film is and what it represents to this era of filmmaking and it's it's so creatively fun it's so stylish you know it's a story that that needed to be told and i credit welsh for for writing the novel in that way and he you know like we said last week had some of those experiences so it came from a really genuine place so i value that and i do think that there's a certain richness that the book has that it's it's not quite as rich in the film but it's rich in different ways because we're getting like the visual mediums richness versus like the story uh, yeah. of like getting these vignettes and getting to live with these characters for a little more time. But I'm with you. I'm going to take the movie because it's so well crafted. And it's a, it's one of those miracle movies that you're like, you're hearing like, oh my God, they're doing all this in basically one take. They had like no time. The budget was really low. These performances are so like, these are career defined. Like this will set you up for your career. If you have a performance like this and a movie that does this well, this was a time where it was like time to flip it, everything on its head and to be like that sort of Gen X revolutionary, anarchy like like uh go against the status quo kind of stuff and this film represents that in a lot of ways with you know some of the other ones that we've talked about from the time period so yeah this movie's movie's great and and i recommend it all right i think that's where we're gonna have to leave this one um we did want to point out uh we have merch available through our patreon there's like t-shirts and hoodies and like a, a mug the art is designed by natalie metzger it's really cool looking um and we would love it if you would consider uh, signing up to get that, it would really help us out. So please look at our Patreon, patreon.com slash film. We also have bonus episodes on there. We just did a tier ranking for all of the projects that we did from the fifth season of, of the show. And we like ranked them S through D or F, I think, <laughs> of like, you know, how, how their quality as an, as an adaptation. That kind of stuff we do over there is like a bonus content. So um, if you are looking to support us, that would be a great way to do it. And make sure to leave a rating and review. Speaking of supporting us, wherever you're listening, make sure that you comment and like the video on YouTube, subscribe, all that good stuff. And connect with us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky Now. We're on TikTok. (laughs) We're all over the place. We're adding to film on all of those. We'd love to have you follow us there. And thank you to Letterboxd for our intro and outro music. It's the track everyone you know i'm glad we covered it it was a patreon selection once again uh, i don't think we've said that enough but like thank you for everybody who voted for this um it was a really interesting discussion and i'm glad we covered it now until next time keep adapting keep adapting